up next. Support comes from you and from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. Support comes from you and from the physicians and nurse midwives of Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. WJFF's Fabulous Community Auction is this Saturday in the ballroom at the Western in Calicoon, New York. Our live and silent auction featuring artworks, design objects, products, and services from local businesses and more. Beer, wine, and refreshments, too. Support your community radio station. Doors open at 3, live auction at 5, this Saturday at WJFF's Fabulous Community Auction in Calicoon. And welcome to another episode of Out and About, a regular feature every month on the talk shop that focuses on LGBT people, LGBTQ people, events and culture. I'm your host, Midge Maroney. Our guests tonight are two staff members from the National LGBTQ Task Force. Andy Garcia is the director of Creating Change, and Victoria Rodriguez Rolden is the senior policy counselor. Founded in 1973, the National LGBTQ Task Force is one of the oldest advocacy groups in the country. We have a lot to talk about, so let's see if we can welcome Andy Garcia and Victoria Rodriguez-Rolden. Are you there, Andy? Yes, thank you for having me. Andy Uh, is, Midge, and Victoria isn't, so we're going to get the conversation started with Andy right now, and then we're going to get Victoria on the line in just a moment, all right? Thank you. And and that's uh, our standby engineer, Brad Mann. So thank you very much, Brad. Okay, so Andy, uh, you are the director of Creating Change Conference. So why don't you uh, begin by telling the listeners a little bit of the history of the LGBTQ task force, because you are one of the oldest um, advocacy groups for LGBTQ people. And tell us first, why don't you tell us the mission, and then we'll get you to talk a little bit about the history. Sure. Our mission is is pretty simple. Um, The National LGBTQ Task Force advances full freedom, justice, and equality for LGBTQ people. Um, Our tagline is BU. We are building a future where um, everyone's free to be themselves in every aspect of their lives. As, As your listeners probably know, despite all the progress that we've made, uh, millions of LGBTQ people do still face barriers in many aspects of their lives, including housing, employment, health care, retirement, and basic human rights. So uh, we're training and mobilizing millions of activists across the country. To- well, I think it's really important. And um, I was always one of the believers that uh, never thought when uh, uh, Barack Obama was elected president that we ever were post-racial. And the same thing after marriage equality. I never thought we were post-LGBTQ. And, of course, um, uh, many of our listeners and you and I as well know that um, following the Trump inauguration, uh, two websites that were um, official pages uh, of the White House uh, were taken down within the hour of um, Trump. Uh, swearing the oath, and that was um, the LGBTQ page and the environment page. So those messages really matter. So uh, we know that uh, there's not a friendly uh, White House, and um, so that makes the discrimination even harder. So I think we might have Victoria with us now. Victoria? We do. We do. Midge, and we're going to try and get Andy back on the phone. I apologize. Uh-oh, that, uh, did we lose Andy? We did. Okay. So, well, Victoria, Victoria, are you Victoria there? Victoria is here. I am right here, loud and clear. Good, thank you. Um, and please continue to speak up nice and loudly and clearly. Uh, I was just saying when we had Andy on that, um, and he mentioned the task force, uh, very simple mission, mission equality for all LGBT people. And I said to him, 
you know, he was mentioning that discrimination certainly exists today in every area, whether it's housing, whether it's employment. Um, and um, so we're aware of that. And maybe the rest of the uh, country is not. Uh, certainly some people are not. And I mentioned that one of the first things that the uh, Trump administration did when they took office was to remove the LGBTQ page from the uh, official White House page as well as the environment page. Those two pages went down within, I think, an hour of Trump taking the oath. So um, that's where we are today. We have uh, a less uh, hospitable hospitable uh, environment for the LGBT. Um, folks. So why don't you tell us a little bit, Victoria, about your role, and I'm going to see if we have Brad back on the line. We, I'm we, sorry. We have we Andy. Have, Andy, do we, do we have Andy? Are you there, yeah. Andy? Okay, yeah, we're all here. together. Fantastic, okay, guys. so this is great, uh, and uh, Brad has been terrific tonight. We've had a few technical glitches, but he's right on top of it. So again, if you're just tuning in, this is Midge Maroney. You're listening to uh, another edition of Out and About, and we are so pleased to have two guests from the uh, National LGBTQ Task Force. We have Andy Garcia, and who is the Director of Creating Change, and we have Senior Policy Counselor uh, Victoria Rodriguez-Rolden. So we're going to start uh, back a little bit again about the history of the task force. So Andy, uh, we just had dropped you, and now if you would just go back and tell us about the early days that the task force uh, was created and the role that the task force has played and continues to play in LGBTQ history. Sure, yeah. So we were founded in 1973, which was uh, four years after the Stonewall Rebellion in New York City, which, of course, many consider to be the beginning of the modern LGBTQ movement in the United States. And we are the country's oldest national LGBTQ advocacy group. Um, 1973 is coincidentally the same year I was born. So, um, you know, the task force is 45 years old. And it's important to remember that in 1973, most states still had anti-sodomy laws in the books, and they enforced them. Uh, and being LGBTQ, being lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or queer, was, was profoundly stigmatized. Um, it was still considered a mental illness. And it was pretty common for parents to send their child to a mental institution uh, if they found out that their child was gay. You're so, right that it, it, it seems like the, the, in Stonewall will be 50 years uh, next year, a great, a great opportunity to celebrate, but still, you know, work for equality. And, and, I, right. and I really like the idea that you mention uh, about um, how, many to- how, how different it was uh, 50 years ago and uh, even... Even the way progress began then, uh, it, it was a great challenge because, as you said, the mental illness uh, stigma, uh, so-called, and um, very, very, very hostile, um, so many, um, the sodomy laws you were talking about. So it really was a very different world. Um, exactly. Yeah, one of the first victories of the task force actually was in 1974, just a year after our founding, um, homosexuality was removed as a mental disorder from the American Psychological Association's Diagnostic Manual. And so that was really a turning point in terms of not only how we viewed ourselves, but how the public at large began to view us. And again, it was our founders, including Frank Kameny, who were instrumental in getting the APA to, to remove uh, homosexuality as a mental disease. Um, you know, and I'd, I'd say really any discussion of the changes in laws and public policies over the past 45 years really need to include the work of the task force. And I'd love to give just a few more examples. If oh, I, oh, I'd like you very much to give some more examples because I really think that the history is important uh, because, frankly, what we are facing right now today is, um, is, is blatant. It, it really is, is pretty direct. Um, and I'm talking specifically about hostility, to the LGBTQ people, and I think it is most um, focused aggressively on our transgender uh, brothers and sisters. And uh, but let's go back and talk about some of those examples because uh, it it is um, it is not just an unhappy time, but it's a frightening time right now, and we can't we can't uh, say that it's not. Sure. Yeah. So you know, one of the one of the early things that we did was. Uh, to work to lift the prohibition on federal civil service employment for, for um, gays and lesbians. So we actually were not allowed to serve uh, in those positions un- until 
the 1970s when we lifted that prohibition. Um, we also really worked with the Democratic Party in the 70s to, to make it more responsive to our community. And that included in 1977 uh, the first White House meeting with representatives of LGBTQ organizations, including the task force. Um, so that was historic. Um, it was the first time in our nation's history that openly LGBTQ people were welcomed uh, into the White House and really the first official discussion of LGBTQ rights in, in, in the White House. Was that the Carter administration? It was the Carter yes. administration, and in fact, the uh, it was arranged with uh, with his assistant, whose name was coincidentally Midge. Oh, oh, Midge Dector. Uh, Midge Costanza. Midge, Midge Costanza. I'm sorry, Midge Dector. In fact, is on the other side of the political spectrum. She was more on the, <laughs> right. the right side. I'm sorry, Midge Costanza. Yes, I think she was from the Buffalo region, maybe. But yes, absolutely. So that's mm-hmm. nice to hear somebody mentioning names from the past, um, because you mentioned that you were, what, four years old at Stonewall, and I was, uh, you know, came to the city about 10 years after and came out then right after graduate school, so Mm. I'm another generation, but nevertheless, uh, Stonewall was still very fresh in my memory because I heard the stories uh, from people, the the eyewitnesses were there, so... um, uh, so go on and tell us a, cu- a couple more examples. Th- that's really good to hear about the Carter administration. I'd forgotten that. Absolutely, yeah. Um, in the 1980s, you know, our, uh, some of our big focuses were were organizing against homophobic violence, which was which had really spiked during the 1980s, really as a backlash to advances we'd made. And then, of course, um, HIV um, was you know a very big focus. I have a photo on my wall of um Irvashi Vade who was one of our um one of the founders of the conference that I'm now directing uh from 1990 where she is holding up a sign disrupting president bush's the president bush senior uh his he was, she she interrupted a speech with a sign that said remember gay people with aids and that got you know quite a bit of of publicity at the time um, we were also a founding member of the military freedom project which uh prepared the ground for the for the gays in the military debate of 1993. So, you know, we worked with Carter, we've worked with Clinton, um, obviously we've worked with, with pretty much every administration since, uh, since our founding. Um, but really that historic 1977 meeting was, was the first. Um, two, two other things that I would say, you know, in 2010, uh, we had a, a campaign called Queer the Census where we um, sent out bright pink stickers for people to stick on on their census envelopes, which had a form for them to check a box for either lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or straight ally. So, of course, you know, it wasn't official. It was, it was actually stuck to the outside of the envelope as people returned the census. Um, but we, we have actually introduced legislation for the 2020 census to include uh, LGBTQ identity as a, as a question. And that's really important, and I want you to tell the listeners why it's so important, because it really is to get the statistics Right. The statistics are so important. They really, um, well, you know, first of all, they let, they let folks know exactly how many of us there are or, you know, an estimate of how many of us there are, which I think is a constant debate and, you know, in some ways is a little irrelevant. It doesn't matter how many of us there are in order for us to, to be considered equal. That's not a, you know, certainly not a, a, you know, a requirement. But what it does is, you know, the census for, for every population that it captures, it really, um, allows the government to know where to allocate resources, for example. So it's incredibly important in that regard. Um, it's also how we, we designate um, districts and, and voting power in this country. Exactly, and, um, and, and that's really important. And we need all, we need all of the demographics to know uh, where, where, um, where the country's needs are, where the country's uh, strengths and weaknesses are. I'm talking about... Uh, issues like uh, education, um, uh, medical delivery services, and so forth. So we need all of the information to to look at where we are. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, let's bring Victoria into the conversation, too, because, uh, Victoria, and even though you're um, a legal policy counselor, I'm sure you remember uh, some of the history of Stonewall and the years that followed, even if even if you were just a baby, you're not even around then. So are there any stories that um, you want to talk about, say, back in the day, some 20, 30 years ago or more? Any, uh, anything regarding 
maybe um, a large change that you... So, I would say, and I'm going to speak more recently, as I was born in 89, I am very firmly a millennial. Yes. I am... <laughs> The generation that that grew up on the shoulders of giants, uh, giants of Stonewall and of the 1980s AIDS uh, epidemic and the struggles that came about. But one thing I would mention when it comes, for example, the trans community, uh, the task force was always at the forefront of that work. And in 2001, the first time that there was uh, a policy council working full-time on trans justice issues. Lisa Motte actually started at the task force what was then called the Transgender Civil Rights Project this in 2001. Uh, and it started out actually with some funding from Equal Justice Works. After, a couple, after the funding ran out, the task force decided it was too important to let the project last. And one of the biggest success stories of this project, which I'm now the director of uh, since 2015, has been that of ID documents. When it started, most states required for onerous surgery requirements for trans people to be able to update the gender marker or the name on their driver's license, for example. And one exercise I'm going to ask all the listeners, think of every time you have to show your ID when you pick up a prescription, when you buy alcohol, when you get pulled over by police more stressfully, uh, and so on. And how that impacts a transgender person whose identity may not be as accurately reflected in this license. Um, and one of the biggest success stories is that by now most states have made it much easier to fix that, to update their information and licenses and uh, ID cards. And more recently, we have been working a lot on disability issues. And one of the big priorities that we work with at the task force is to be the progressive voice of the LGBTQ community. And in that sense, we try to be, if it's not being done, if people are saying it can't be done, that's our cue to get involved in it, basically. And, for example, we knew some very awful statistics from the National Transgender Discrimination Survey that we had co-conducted in 2011 of how 41% of trans people had attempted suicide, for example. Uh, but we knew very little say about their interactions with mental health care. Like, did you see a psychiatrist? Did you see a therapist? What was the experience like due to you being trans? Mm -hmm. And one of the things we recently conducted in a partnership with uh, Trans Lifeline was the mental health survey, as we've been calling it. And we are right now in the process of preparing the final report of the data that we accumulated, and you can imagine the very long Excel spreadsheets that we have of several thousand respondents online that were accumulated last year. Uh, but that, that, publish... no, I was going to say that's yeah. so that's so important to know because um, healthcare delivery is, is a human right for everybody. And uh, when you're talking about gathering those statistics, it's so important to know about, um, mm -hmm. you know, how how you were treated when you were at the intake desk and how were you treated with the nurses, the physicians and so forth. That's really important. And more so to draw on what Andy was saying from 1973, when the uh, in 1973-74 we removed homosexuality from the list of mental health disorders in the Diagnostic and uh, Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. But trans people were still cataloged as a disorder up until the latest revision a couple of years ago. And that was one of our efforts. More recently, like we talk about how it was very common for uh, LGBT people to be sent into mental institutions and to corrective camps 
That is still happening in many parts of the country. So one of our biggest priorities is conversion therapy uh, and conversion therapy vans to keep parents from abusing their children by sending them to, quote-unquote, therapy to try to change who they are, which doesn't work and has been uh, the, uh, dismantled as uh, ineffective and unnecessary by the medical community. Uh, and right now, only 14 states ban it. It's legal in New York State. It is legal in Pennsylvania, uh, where we are at broadcasting right now. And to name another example, one of our biggest priorities when it comes to the conversion therapy bans has been, since they have been focused on minors, take out the case of people who are under a guardianship because of their disability but who are over 18 and also include them under these conversion therapy bans. And we're working on that right now in various jurisdictions to make sure that we include that Victoria, in the bans and not, nobody is left behind. Victoria, I want to make sure that the listeners understand what uh, c- the conversion uh, therapy is because it it you're absolutely right it's it's abuse uh, last month by the way um, on uh, a regular NPR feature Terry Gross uh, who's uh, usually nationalized on a lot of NPR affiliates uh, she had an interview with a woman who did a biography on her conversion therapy um, but uh, people don't really understand when you hear the term therapy uh, you, we try to think of something positive, like uh, you broke your wrist, so you go to physical therapy. And we try to think of um, psychiatric therapy as being supportive and helpful. But tell us about some of this conversion therapy, because I don't know that the listeners really understand that it's uh, fairly cruel and inhumane. So conversion therapy is essentially any effort on a quote-unquote medical setting, and you notice my use of quotation marks here, uh, to try to change the person, the patient's uh, sexual orientation or gender identity, to try to make them straight, basically. Uh, Obviously, there is no such, there is no way to do this. It is assuming still that it is a disease to somehow uh, be corrected or cured rather than an integral part of our identities to be celebrated and be proud of. Uh, and in the process, what leads to is more trauma, more, uh, more hurtful experiences where we see parents, especially in religious settings, will take the child who has just come out to them or that they learn that the child is trans or uh, gay or bisexual or whatnot and send them against their will to uh, spaces where, to, for example, troubled teen camps where they will be subjected to this uh, supposed therapy to try to essentially pray the gay away. And it doesn't change the sexual orientation or gender identity. What it achieves is to essentially torture and shame the person into believing more that they're bad, that they're broken, and that who they are is a sin, and creating more trauma and abuse, essentially. Mm -hmm. That is, and obviously, that is why in several states it has been uh, rightfully banned as a crime to do it when it comes to uh, minors. It is now illegal in 14 states to uh, perform conversion therapy in people under 18. Uh, and currently not so. It is currently legal in New York State and Pennsylvania where listeners are. Uh, so that is essentially in a nutshell conversion therapy and why it needs to be banned, essentially. And we should add, it also happens with adults, people over 18, that are pressured socially by their communities like church congregations, by family members, by people they're uh, financially dependent on, like parents, even if you're over 18, uh, to be pushed into these uh, conversion therapy camps and to... Uh, be 
essentially coerced into it. And like I said, more recently, we've been working on including people who are under a guardianship because of their disability, like, say, you have Down syndrome or you're autistic and you're under a guardianship with your parents or guardians, uh, but you're over 18, you can still be legally coerced into this because of your sexual orientation or your gender identity. So we're working for the conversion therapy vans to include this entire segment of the population right now. Yeah, that's that's really important because uh, I think the average listener, uh, perhaps even gay or straight even, might not remember or even understand how traumatic it can be, especially like for a very young person, uh, oh, no, you can't wear a dress. Oh, no, you have to wear those. You have to wear jeans. You're a boy. You have to wear a T-shirt. No, you can't wear a dress. Or the same thing, the little girl wants to wear, a, she doesn't like the dress. So even just something that seems as simple as clothing can be um, really traumatizing. It can be uh, humiliating uh, when someone doesn't want to wear the kind of clothes that doesn't feel good on them. I mean, we all experience that. We like some kind of clothes better than others. When we're adults, we're allowed to choose. But with children, um, that's an issue. But but thanks for, for flushing out a little bit of that conversion therapy. I want to go back to something, though, you mentioned. Uh, we're going to take a break in a couple of minutes, but I want to go back to something you mentioned that's really important, too. I saw an item in the paper recently about the very issue of... Um, your gender being noted on your um, identification because uh, there's there's tremendous effort now for voter suppression. And what I read, uh, I think it was in the Times over the weekend, uh, that there were uh, efforts in some states uh, to, to specifically target uh, trans men, trans women, uh, wanting an identification with them and if it said uh, male and they were identified female, they would deny them their ballot. And the number was was shocking. It was something like almost 70,000 people that they wondered about just as a number that they were figuring out, just looking at statistics or having some information. You think about that kind of huge number, and even if you spread the 78,000 over a dozen states, Look at the small numbers in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin uh, that changed an election. And so uh, it's just another way of, um, of voter suppression by forcing uh, identification cards with, with gender determination on it. Um, so, yes, that trans people are some of the major victims of voter ID laws, basically. Since they, come, they both come from the goal of voter suppression of people who are less likely to have uh, a current photo ID, and this predominantly impacts elderly people, people of color, and demographics that are more likely to vote Democratic, which is why many Republican legislators have been championing these, uh, these bills. But it does enormously impact trans people because when you start to require a photo ID that reflects your your name, the name on the ballot, or the gender, and so on, you start to have situations where maybe you have a beard, but the license still says your name is Alexandra uh, because you haven't been able to afford the attorney uh, and whatnot to go to the courthouse and change your legal name. And that gives an excuse to the ballot clerk, to the elections clerk, elections judge, whichever way it's called in any state, to refuse your ballot, to refuse to let you vote, even though you're validly registered to vote. The same thing goes with uh, gender markers and so forth. And there is both the access to uh, ID documents that reflect uh, the person's identity, like uh, birth certificates, driver's licenses, and all the situations where you have to show them, but by also adding voting to the situations where you have to show an ID document that reflects your identity, uh, where the picture looks like you, and so on, you're making it more difficult to be accessible to trans people. Right, right. It's it's a, it's a serious issue, the, the whole issue of voter suppression, but it seems like they're always coming up with one 
uh, one way or another, whether it's gerrymandering. But anyway, uh, we're going to take a short break here. You're listening to um, uh, the um, you're listening to the National LGBTQ Task Force on Out and About. I'm Midge Maroney. I have two guests from the task force, Andy Garcia and Victoria Rodriguez Rolden. Uh, when we come back, Victoria and Andy, I want to talk about the task force. Uh, what we call the intersectional framework and how racial justice uh, is included in terms of um, how the task force addresses different um, different means of uh, addressing discrimination, whether it's racial justice, whether it's um, uh, health um, uh, discrimination and um a lot of that. So, so we'll come right back after we do a quick break. Thanks, and hang on. We'll, we'll be right back. And you are listening to uh, 90.5 FM in Jeffersonville, uh, 94.5 in Monticello. This is WJFF Public Radio, Sullivan County, the Catskills, and northeastern Pennsylvania. We also are streaming live at wjffradio.org. I'm Midge Maroney. This is another episode of Out and About. And we're so pleased to have guests from the LGBTQ National Task Force. We have Andy Garcia, who's a senior policy counsel. And I'm sorry, we have Andy Garcia, who is the director of Creating Change. And we have Victoria Rodriguez-Rolden, who is a senior policy counselor. So uh, we talked a little bit about the task force history. I want to talk about the the approach of uh, what the task force calls intersectional framework. I want to talk about some issues of racial injustice and uh, gun violence, um, the issue of um, people of color, uh, violence, um, and uh, so let's talk about how that works, like the racial justice. um, Maybe we can look at some commonalities such as uh, trans women of color seem to be the greatest a uh, group of the LGBTQ family that suffers the most violence and discrimination in our society today in America. So uh, I think both GLAD and the Human Rights Campaign have pointed out that there's um, really an epidemic of violence against trans people that's been growing since they, since about 2012, more than five years it's been going on. And the Southern Poverty Law Center also tracks a lot of the hate group and violence, and they also have shown that... Um, uh, the trans community in the LGBT uh, group is, family is um, is really getting more than its share of uh, violence. So let's talk a little bit about that, the intersectional framework and how the task force addresses equality and fighting uh, violence and fighting discrimination. Do we have you there, Andy and Victoria? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So let me, uh, why don't you, why don't you uh, start first, um, Andy, because uh, Victoria was talking earlier, and let's hear from you a little bit about uh, the, the approaches that the task force uh, takes sometimes in its work. Sure. I will actually kick it to Victoria, because this is much more her area of expertise. Okay. So, Victoria, um, let's talk a little bit about the, the approaches then with, um, the uh, task force roles in um, uh, changing public policy or cultural awareness, acceptance, and so forth? So I guess one of the ways we could start is by explaining what is intersectionality. I like to compare it to explain it in a metaphor used in the show Doctor Who, which is simply to say people often think of all these different issues and movements as separate little buckets that are clearly separate, like here are voting rights, here's uh, racial discrimination issues and justice, here's reproductive issues, here's LGBTQ issues. When in reality, it is more of like a single big ball of wibbly-wobbly, activist-y, whiny stuff, basically. 
essence, we need to see them as intersecting, as weaving together, and you cannot tackle one without tackling the other. Audrey Lord said, um, major LGBT rights icon, said that we cannot lead single-issue lives, we cannot do single-issue advocacy because we do not lead single-issue lives. And that is an integral part of what intersectionality means. It means when we do our work that, for example, we need to think of how the policies we work on affect, say, LGBTQ people with disabilities, which is why we talk about guardianship and conversion therapy, or how it impacts LGBTQ people of color, which is why we talk, for example, about issues around policing, around criminal justice, and so on, how it impacts um, LGBTQ people and families, which is why we have an entire project around uh, reproductive justice, or how it impacts how we talked about earlier about voting and access to the ballot, which is why we have the entire democracy initiative. So... We need to see, essentially, or when we talk, for example, policing, LGBTQ people are more likely to be targeted by police or the victims of hate crimes. We talk about sex work because trans people are more likely to have to resort to criminalized forms of making a living, same with uh, drug legalization and decriminalization and so forth. So it is about... When I said being the progressive voice of the LGBTQ movement, of also acting in all the spaces that impact disproportionately LGBTQ people, if that makes sense, of seeing how uh, it impacts all, all the most vulnerable within the LGBTQ community, because LGBT people do not live in a vacuum. They do not get to choose which identity are they going to wear when they go out, like you choose which dress to put on that morning. So, yeah. Well, you know, one issue I think I'd like to talk about, I think because I think it's a great example of uh, the concept of intersectionality, how it doesn't, you know, one issue is related to the next issue is related to the next issues, and and they're really inextricably linked. And what I found when I was looking at some of your policy issues and series uh, is the one on gun violence. And um, as a matter of fact, uh, one of the early guests that we had on uh, out and about when the show was just beginning about three years ago was Gays Against Guns. Uh, And that was uh, in response to uh, the Orlando massacre. Um, And so gun violence became uh, really a a very uh, important um, aspect of um, the Pulse nightclub shooting uh, of LGBTQ life because um, everybody went there just to have fun and dancing and then they were being shot for being who they were and um, so there was there was a very strong response um, by I think many many areas of the gay community against gun violence and it looks like the um, uh, the task force was really concerned with um, calling attention to certain matters. And um, when we saw Parkland um, last February, uh, two years after um, the Pulse nightclub shooting, uh, it was it was some of the same issues that, that came up, um, that their background checks were not in place, uh, the easy use of uh, rapid-fire weapons. And um, uh, so do you want to talk at all about that as an example of where um, our interests uh, coincide with uh, everybody that wants to be free and safe? Yeah. Uh, to one extent, the very gun violence prevention memo that you read and uh, we saw, it came about in the aftermath of Pulse. Uh, the Pulse shooting, as we mentioned, and one thing you mentioned, people, everyone went there to have fun. Everyone went there also because it was a safe space for them, where you weren't going to be judged, where many people were not out to family. There were victims whose parents learned about the shooting 
about their uh, son's or uh, family member's LGBT identity when they got the call from police looking for the next of kin, basically. So it was a safe space. And there's a reason why Stonewall happened in a bar, basically, because they have been historically safe spaces for the community. Uh, When it comes to the gun violence prevention advocacy that we've been engaging in, it came about after polls, there was many LGBTQ advocates got into the bandwagon of, you know, we need to do something about gun violence that impacts the community. This is a big issue for LGBTQ people because we're more likely to be victims of gun violence and so forth. And the task force had a discussion of how can we bring this about in a genuinely progressive way because we were concerned how mainstream gun violence prevention advocacy often singles out people with disabilities when it comes to stigmatizing mental illness, despite the fact that people with mental illness are, if anything, more likely to be victims of gun violence rather than perpetrators. It often supports policies that uh, are racially biased, like the no-fly list, which shouldn't be used to deny someone a free sample of ice cream, let alone board a plane. Um, and we question, we need to create our own brand of what does it mean to be both progressive and for gun violence prevention and for, as our board of directors stated, uh, an America free from gun violence, basically. Uh, and some of that advocacy included focusing, for example, what did that look like? talking about police-perpetrated gun violence, for example, and how LGBTQ people are more likely to be impacted by this. It involves talking about guns specifically and not about mental illness and going after that. It involves discussing uh, issues around how domestic violence, uh, many people with domestic violence records can still access guns, but we're too focused on racially motivated, uh, racially biased pro- uh, projects like the no-fly list. So that is essentially what brought about a lot of the memo that created the gun violence prevention document. It was how do we, what does genuinely progressive uh, gun violence prevention advocacy look like? Not just, you know, being basically conservatives with a grudge towards the NRA, as I said. Um, right. But how do we make it genuinely intersectional? Yes, that and that's important. Uh, I want to change the, uh, directions a little bit here, too, because I want to bring uh, Andy in to talk about creating change. Um, and Andy is the director, and that, that's an important um uh, part of what the task force is is about. So, Andy, why don't you um, and and if you're just tuning in, this is out and about. I'm Midge Maroney, and our guests are from the National LGBTQ Task Force. Andy Garcia is the director of Creating Change. Victoria Rodriguez Roland is a senior policy counselor. Uh, and Andy, why don't you start by giving us uh, giving the listener contact information if they want some information about the task force. Give us your website and maybe how to contact people and a phone number or two. Sure. So the best way to reach us is um, by going to creatingchange.org. Um, there's currently information actually about how to submit a proposal for the conference. Registration will open uh, next week, um, but that is the best way to reach us is through creatingchange.org. Um, I am the new director of the Creating Change Conference. Uh, my predecessor, uh, Sue Hyde, was actually one of the co-founders and has been the director uh, since 1988. So. Uh, we're looking toward uh, the conference in 2019 will be the 31st annual uh, Creating Change Conference, and that will be uh, in Detroit, Michigan, uh, January 23rd through the 27th. Okay, and tell us uh, what you do with this, uh, with this conference. Talk about some of the workshops and talk about some of the activities that are involved in the – is it a two-day conference? It is actually a five-day conference. Five-day conference. Um, it's a, yes, it's okay. a rather rather involved conference. Um, so again, for the past thirty-one years, um, you know, we've been doing this conference as 
you know, the foremost political leadership and skills building conference for the movement. Uh, we realized in 1988 that there was no conference um, to build the political power of the LGBT movement um, and allied movements for, for justice and equality. Um, so, you know, it's thousands and thousands of people have attended since 1988, including myself. I've gone uh, for 23 years uh, since 1995, since I was right out of college. Um, we get about 3,500 to 4,000 people each year, um, which is, you know, the largest LGBT conference in the country. Um, there are uh, 18 day-long institutes prior to the conference proper. Um, there are two dozen trainings um, called, that we call Task Force Present that our own staff um, coordinate and facilitate. Um, there's approximately 300 workshops, um, so it's a pretty packed um, a pretty packed conference. There are also three keynote plenary sessions. The topics are, are vast. I mean, they, they fall into roughly uh, kind of seven major content areas. Some of them, you know, activism, advocacy, and organizing. Uh, some of them are more geared towards community and identity. Um, our democracy work, so again, like our census work and our voter engagement work. Um, equity and justice, so not just racial justice and disability justice, as Victoria talked about, but really dismantling all oppressive systems and replacing them with opportunities uh, for all people. Um, we do a lot of faith and spirit, spirituality work as well at the conference, um, in addition to health and healing, and then, of course, uh, movement building and organizational development, which really focus on the skills uh, that organizations and individuals doing this work uh, need. Um, the topics are just incredibly broad, um, everything from college organizing to criminal justice, um, immigration issues, um, you know, really everything that, that constitutes a, a very broad social justice movement, which the task force, as your listeners have heard, is, is very committed to. So uh, you said the registration will open in a couple of days for the 2019 Creating Change. And what, what dates um, will it be? available? I mean, what, what um, dates is the conference? The conference is January 23rd through the 27th, and we are very excited to be in Detroit. Okay. Um, and um, so the 23rd to the 27th, and again, uh, the contact is creatingchange.org. .org. All right. Yep. Okay. And it really is a, a magic space. So, you know, there, there are two elements to the, to the conference. One of them is, is, you know, very centered on learning. Uh, so skills and knowledge and attitude, um, but also, um, you know, really helping people connect. So for, for many people, it's the first time that they've ever been in a space. We basically take over a whole hotel, whole, an entire hotel, and it's really, for a lot of people, um, you know, the first time that they've connected with, with that many people, with, with you know, nearly 4,000 people. And I can just say for myself as a participant for 23 years, it really was, you know, life-changing and life-shaping. I mean, so many of us who have been to this conference um, really, you know, identify it as, as, you know, the reason that we do this work. It really feeds us and it educates us and it allows us to connect and network with people. Um, there are so many kind of spaces outside of the workshops and the plenary sessions offering support and opportunities for people. Um, we're great about, you know, making sure that we accommodate everybody's needs, whether that's, you know, financial or disabilities or, you know, really anything that um, allows someone to be you, as our, as our tagline would, would suggest. Okay. Uh, you mentioned, um, I think, um, voter access or voter rights. And so we're just um, about two months away from a really important uh, midterm election. Can you talk a little bit about some of the workshops, um, what what people were talking about in terms of uh, voter registration or uh, even dis, uh, you know incidents of disenfranchisement or what what might expect? Uh, we talked with Victoria a little bit about the issue that um, uh, voter voter suppression via uh, requiring IDs. And the idea that someone's uh, old driver's license might not match, you know, who they are in the term in gender uh, today, as the picture is a couple of years old, um, and the um, and the and the designation, whether it's male or female, uh, is no longer valid. So, did you address any issues like that with regard to um, voting and voter suppression? Definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, we're we're very much focused on building 
political power. That is really central to the conference. And there's so many different ways that that happens. Um, so we really support grassroots a- activists um, who are doing work, you know, at a, at a very uh, community-oriented level, all the way up through, um, you know, federal policy work. So and everything in between, including really important municipal work um, and state legislative work. And um, all of those issues uh, that Victoria was talking about have different components of that. So there's there's obviously the public education that comes along with educating voters about what the issues are. So, for example, you know, I love the example of of conversion therapy, um, working with state legislatures as well as local municipal governments. Those those bans on conversion therapy for minors are happening at both the municipal level, the city and uh, county level, as well as the the state level. Um, It really requires, you know, folks doing that, you know, having the tools to do, for example, in-depth canvassing, going door-to-door and explaining issues to people, um, and it requires the systems uh, change. So how do we introduce legislation? What's model legislation? How do we advance legislation, uh, for example? So it's all of those different grassroots all the way up to, you know, real federal systems change that we, we really want to build power for, for that whole spectrum of, of activism. Okay, I want to uh, turn to another topic here, too, um, and that's the issue of uh, work faith or faith in religion. And um, there was uh, something really uh, distressing um, in the news recently with Attorney General Jeff Sessions announcing that there would be a religious task force, uh, religious liberty task force, and uh, that was something uh, that the 2017 uh, DOJ memo uh, under the Trump uh, Justice Department uh, had sent out. And now Attorney General Sessions very recently said that, um, for example, um, that um, they want to make sure that um, uh, no religious groups will be threatened with their uh, nonprofit status if they go out and uh, campaign or lobby on behalf of certain political candidates. Now, that really is not allowed under the Johnson Amendment, which I'm going to remind listeners I'm not an attorney, but uh, the Johnson Am- Amendment uh, regards that um, you uh, that uh, churches can't be used for public advocacy. The 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 minister, the rabbi, the imam can't say, vote for this candidate because they're the best for us. Um, but now Attorney General uh, Sessions is is trying to enforce this policy called religious liberty, meaning that uh, organizations, religious organizations, if they call themselves religious organizations, they can actively lobby uh, on behalf of political candidates. So... It's really important to point out that religion, um, in this regard, it's, it's really, it's, they, they're saying religious freedom, but it's really an excuse to, uh, allow discrimination against LGBTQ people. And I would just really emphasize that this has been happening at the state level for years now. Um, there are, I think, six states, um, and Victoria, correct me if I'm wrong, that allow even state-funded adoption and foster care agencies to deny placements to um, same-sex couples or, or really anyone that they deem incompatible with their quote-unquote religious beliefs. But what that's really doing is just, you know, again, this this year-long, this many years-long uh, discrimination against LGBTQ people that somehow were, you know, not capable or, or, or competent as parents, for example, which is just patently untrue. So this, this has actually been happening at the state level uh, for years now, and this is just kind of culminating um, in this task force. Well, it seems they're doing the same same religious attack uh, for marriage equality. It's the same. It's the same thing. One state challenges, and then the next state. And uh, right now, we have the um, the masterpiece uh, cake situation. Uh, that's with uh, out in the state of Colorado. The um, I think it was the Denver uh, Civil Rights Commission. Um, uh, declared that it that this masterpiece cake uh, had to provide a cake for a gay wedding, but they were discriminating, and so it goes up to the Supreme Court, and then a, a kind of very narrow ruling um, says, "Well, oh, never mind." Um, and then there's a similar uh, case being challenged, I think called Arlene Flowers, and that's several cases 
that have to do with discriminating against LGBTQ people. I think it was a lesbian couple that wanted flowers for their wedding, and there have been a couple cases that have merged with that, and I think right now that's been sent back to a lower court. But there are these, you're right, these religious um, hobby lobby, which had to do with um, exemptions for, um, you know, uh, not not covering uh, contraceptives uh, for um, for their employees. So there is an intersection here with um, this religious discrimination. That's uh, and um, so you want to tie out and well, we have about five minutes left. So you have any comments or suggestions on that on that issue? Yeah, I mean, some people have referred to this as as a backlash against marriage equality, but I would actually argue that it's just an extension of what the opposition to LGBTQ equality has been doing, you know, all along, which is morphing, um, you know, so that they can continue to claim victories. Um, So, you know, I I really, again, like, I think it's a false flag to say that it's about religious freedom. It really is about discrimination. Um, And I'll, I'll turn it over to Victoria to let her have the last word. Yes, and we just have about a minute for our last word, Victoria. That'd be great. So it is all about, at this point, we started out over 40 years ago now, uh, approaching 50, and it is about continuing the work. It is still, we still have a lot of work to go. As you said at the start, we are not in a post-LGBTQ society. We might not be in our lifetimes, but... Our mission as advocates is to try to work ourselves out of a job, essentially. So, and I like to say that my goal as an advocate is for a world where no one has to feel afraid when they look themselves in the mirror and say, I'm queer, basically. Well, well, we've been so happy to have you and so lucky to have you. Um, This is Midge Maroney. Our guests uh, today have been Andy Garcia, who is the uh, chair of the uh, change, um, I'm sorry, I'm messing it again. The uh, creating change, the creating change, uh, and that's creatingchange.org is how you can find it. And uh, Victoria Rodriguez Roland is um, policy counsel, at, and they're both with the LGBTQ task force. Uh, so thank you so much for joining. There's so much talking about. I hope you'll come back on again. Uh, maybe after the election we can talk about some more issues. But it's been great having you. Thanks for all the information. And this hour's flown by. Thanks a lot. Um, Thank you. So um, I have one uh, PSA that I want to share with you uh, as we get to close out the show. Uh, The Triversity Center for uh, Gender and Sexual Diversity located in Milford, Pennsylvania, has announced a performance by Virago. That's on Friday, September 7th at 8 p.m. They're located at 120 Reuben Bell Drive in Matamoros. Information at Cindy at udglbt.org. Triversity is a 501c, a nonprofit, and they're in our Upper Delaware. So that for um, for the talk shop, this has been another episode of Out and About. I'm Midge Maroney. Uh, our music is by Cindy Rickman, and we are so grateful for Brad Mann stepping in and being our engineer tonight. So um, we got some, we have some nice weather coming up, and so. Um, Yes, uh, we're getting through all of this rainy season. Thanks a lot, Brad. Okay, and good night, everybody. Bye-bye. Support comes from you and from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. Support comes from you and from the physicians and nurse midwives of Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center, WMH.org. And this is WJFF Jeffersonville and W2338823388H Monticello. Public Radio for Sullivan County, the Catskills, and Northeast Pennsylvania community supported for over 25 years. Almost 8 o'clock here in Jeffersonville and 
67 degrees, partly cloudy. Chance of showers tonight, then mostly cloudy overnight, low of 55. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, high of 72. And that forecast continuing into tomorrow night, mostly clear, low of 53 overnight. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, all highs in the high 70s, lows in the mid-50s at night. Sunny all weekend. Keep your shorts on. Summer's not over. Stay tuned right now for me, Brad Mann, here on WJFF with my show Neonatal Pulse. All new, brand new music for the next two hours. Stick around for it right now. Support